Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to All Stats, aren't we? A podcast in which Leeds fans cast their combined eye over goings on at Elland Road, giving scrutiny to the underlying statistics and tactical footings at work at Leeds United. I'm John McKenzie, the Hassan camera passing the ball to Samir of the podcast. And today I'm joined by the Samir passing the ball to Rodrigo of the podcast, Darren Driver. <laughs> and finally, the Rodrigo rounding Ben Foster in scoring of the podcast is Adam Elliott. Adam, how are you doing? All I'm taking from this is that I'm the good bit of this move and you two are the bad bits. And I don't know what that says about you two, but... Um... I got the assist, Adam. You can just stop that right away. <laughs> yeah, I just completely stacked it. So, yeah, I'm not looking forward to this podcast. Well, we mentioned um, them making mistakes at the back and they did do, didn't they? So that was good to, to see after we previewed it. But yeah, um, I'm all right. Thanks, John. Um, I'm, I'm happy that we won. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and another man who's happy that we won is Darren Driver. <laughs> You wouldn't know it by looking at me, honestly. <laughs> um, yeah, I yes, I'm 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 good, John. It's good to be here. I, I will no doubt enjoy this podcast a lot more than I've enjoyed either of the watchings of the game, um, because at least I'll be able to pull some sense out of it through conversation with you guys, um, which there's not a lot of sense on show when you're actually watching it. John, how are you doing, brother? I am doing very well. The sun is shining. There's a whole new day ahead of us. There's a long time before we have to watch Leeds again, yes. um, which will give us a little bit of breathing space. But yeah, I'm, I'm doing wonderfully. Before we jump into the podcast itself, let's just spend a little bit of time talking about Patreon. So Patreon is a platform which allows us to put out bonus material for our subscribers. And that could be anything from podcasts to video analyses. We have a number of different podcasts that we run on our channel. Uh, we have a under 23's podcast coming out at the end of the week which will be something to look forward to I've been putting out video analysis of Jesse Marsh's time at Salzburg and we will do video analyses of the game as well so if you haven't checked out our Patreon do think about doing that Obviously, we do these podcasts and we talk in in a, in a reasonable degree of depth about the game. But every time I watch one of the one of the review videos by either John or Hobbsy, I kind of learn something new about the game that that we weren't able to pick up in in these things and and that that's always a wonderful thing and plus you know like I'm not particularly interested in scouting I've, I haven't got the time or the energy or the knowledge to do that so when when the autos list episodes come out I always particularly look forward to those um because it gives me an insight into into a world I just don't have the time to explore independently so I, I you know I think the best way to think about the patreon is that it that, that it buys all of us the time to put some additional content out that just wouldn't be possible without it it would primarily just be these review podcasts without that and i think it's a really good value service even if i do say so myself i'm extremely biased but obviously i think what we do is different from what other people are doing within the leeds community so if you are a leeds fan or even if you're a fan of jesse marsh for whatever reason then i think what we do is is really eye-opening and and gains a better understanding as darren mentioned and and also you get 
other little perks like the the discord which is a really good community itself now and and i just think if you have got the money and and you are fancying it because you've quite enjoyed our content recently then maybe think about um subscribing to us because um yeah i think we're, we're just you know above and beyond what what people expect good stuff well let's move on to talk about the game itself so we'll start off with the game summary it was obviously a 3-0 win against Watford, although the XG per stats bomb was 1.1 XG to Leeds and 1.2 XG to Watford. So a little bit fortunate in our finishing, but no one's complaining about that right now. The big news of the starting lineup was no Adam Forshaw in the squad and Robin Koch replacing him in the starting lineup rather than Calvin Phillips. But apart from that, everything was the same as the previous fixture against Southampton. So we went off 4-2-3-1 with the usual suspects filling out the spaces. I don't really know what to say about either half, to be honest. Neither team looked particularly great on or off the ball. We did look mildly threatening at times in the opening exchanges, but by the time the first goal came, it felt as though Watford had started turning the needle in their favour. The goal itself was a lovely Rafinha finish from outside the box, and then from then on, I felt Watford largely controlled the game without really having the quality to cause us problems in our third. Uh, And as the game wore on, Watford pushed a little bit more forward and left some spaces to attack. But when the second goal came, came from a big error by Watford, as we've mentioned. So Kamara and Samir putting the ball uh, on a plate for Rodrigo, who had no problem rounding Foster and scoring. Uh, And then Watford dropped off a little bit at this point and Leeds eased their way to a win. And obviously there was that lovely Jack Harrison finish to round things off. So that summarises the game. Let's move on to the interrogation. So the interrogation section is where I ask the guys five questions about the game to try and get to the heart of what was going on. So we'll kick off with you, Darren. How do you begin to analyse a game like that? I'm sure we ask this question every single week. (laughs) (laughs) And and my answer is slightly different from the previous ones, actually, which is that I think I do do understand yesterday's game a little bit better than, than I understood some of the previous ones. And that is to say that I think it was two poor teams who competed in a desperately poor game and what separated those teams in the final analysis was that three of our better players had a hot streak in front of goal um, and Watford were unable to match that. And, and that's why we won the game and, and they didn't. Um, it's really interesting when you when you mentioned uh, in, in the introduction, John, that there was, what did you say, mild threat or something? Or, um, <laughs> th- there was, yeah, so mildly threatening. And, I, and basically, I, I felt that, that from the point at which we scored, I knew we were going to win the game and there was only ever mild peril in the game going either way. Um, and I, I didn't really feel like Watford were going to have the quality to to um, or the composure in in those moments to to take the chances that they were making because they weren't big chan- they weren't making big chances right they were they made a, a a relatively big number of of smaller chances and I just never felt that they were going to have the quality to to score. Having said that, I I I, I do think it was. And I, you know, and I can't hide away from the fact that I think that it was a really poor performance from Leeds, um, but in, particularly in terms of the way that we used, and I and I use that term advisedly because what I actually mean is wasted possession of the football on 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 far far too many occasions, and it just wasn't a very very enjoyable uh, game to watch, and it was. You know, normally when I do the rewatch, I see something different or something highlights itself that I hadn't noticed on the previous game. But actually, I think I got the game pretty much spot on in my in my initial watching, which you know it it, it just wasn't a very enjoyable thing to do at all. Yeah, I always think that on rewatches, the games are usually like slightly better than you remember them being in, yeah. in the live watch, and that was very much not the case with this game. <laughs> uh, very little to recommend that game as a as a spectacle of football but Adam what about yourself yeah we're still seeing more of this sort of confused performance where there are still elements of Bielsa creeping in uh, in build-up phases where we're passing it between fullback centre mid and winger and, and pushing players over to that side and building up the ball from there and like that's kind of fine at times but then the ball needs to sort of start to come inside again and we're not still we're still not seeing that um there's still issues with the counter press that I noticed. There were a few occasions where two or three players would decide to do it, but they'd actually decide to push players out out to the wing and, and funnel the ball out wide. And that's not what we talked about. Well, we talked about this a lot, and that's not what we should be doing um, when it comes to marsh ball. Like the ball needs to be funneled centrally, and and that's still not being shown uh, as often. There are still phases of play, yeah, where there are elements of marsh creeping in, but it still does feel like it is a a hybrid system and. 
and that's why I think it's quite confusing and there's not as much you can ascertain from this performance still. I think we, we're going to see more of a, a complete version through to next season, but at the moment it is sort of just getting the job done. Um, like, I'm glad we've won 3-0, but on paper, as, as the XG suggests, it probably should have been one all, um, and that probably would have been a fairer result. But like I said, I'm, I'm glad. I'm just annoyed almost that we put in one of our, I would maybe rank it among the top five or six worst performances of the season. It's just a good thing that they're not a great team themselves and even when they got into threatening positions as Darren said they didn't always do the right action with the ball whether that was Saar shooting wide and over or if it was you know a pass that wasn't quite made where they might have got in so yeah well, I think we did ride our luck a little bit yesterday but I'm, I'm obviously very happy I don't want to be negative too much but I'm obviously very happy that we won uh, and that is the main thing in, in situations like this we're now on 33 points and Burnley play four times before our next game against Crystal Palace so hopefully by that game we will know like basically where we're at and and we might be pretty much safe by then if if they uh if they do flounder yeah interesting to say hearing you say there that we won the three points that's that's that because the fan base seemed pretty divided on that game it feels like a chunk of the fan base are just like who cares we've won three nil uh three points what's the issue and there's a chunk who are just a little bit more laconic about it and just saying this is horrible to watch like, is it worth staying up for this? Um, I think it's pretty clear which side of the divide you're on, Adam. But do you want to expand on that? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I don't want to be too negative, but it wasn't a great spectacle yesterday. But I, I am kind of in the middle on this. Like, in the short term, results over performances are what matter. That's what's going to keep us up. But in the long term, we obviously want to see, like, us play better and, and more Marsh-like and commit to this style of play fully. But we haven't yet. And so you know, if this goes into next season and we're 10 games in and it's still a bit hybridy or it's still not quite how it should be, then that's the concern for me. Um, but at the moment, like I said, in the situation that we're in, then yeah, results are the thing that matters. So yesterday, I am disappointed that we didn't play great, of course, but I am just mainly glad that we've managed to get the job done. And uh, our first clean sheet was the first since Palace at home. Like that is a good thing, right? But it's just it doesn't feel as earned potential as it should be. If that makes sense. Yeah, Darren, I feel as though you're maybe slightly towards the uh, the other end of that spectrum. Yeah. So Bielsa changed me forever on this because I used to be absolutely 100 in the in the camp of you don't get points for artistic merit, only results matter. Blah 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 blah. And this season, I've been saying a number of times that, that I'm only really interested in results at the moment, and that that is true. Except I don't watch the games on BBC Sport on the, just watching the score change. What I actually watch is the match uh, in front of me. And so, yeah, I am very results driven at the moment, right up until the point I have to watch the match twice <laughs> um, because I'm because I'm going to be doing this, and and then I need something more than that. And and it's not for me. It's not about like artistic merit necessarily. It's not about seeing things be pretty. I'm not particularly aesthetically driven from that point of view, but I do like to see effective football. And whilst you know the, the there were three effective moments in the game yesterday because three of our better players pulled moments out of the bag, um, I don't think the that the tactical plan was clear. I don't think that that we were effective in what we tried to do, and that's what bothers me. It's, it's not necessarily whether it's pretty or not. So I can I think I can watch long ball football if it's good and if it's effective and if there's a clear a clear method being played out. And at the moment, I just don't feel like we're there. Now the results have been good, right under Marsh. You can't say anything otherwise. It's the it's the best run of results we've had all season, but. When I'm watching the game, it doesn't feel like that. It it feels it feels much much more chance driven than than I would want it to be, and much less about the tactical decisions or the the quality of the play, and much more about just who happens to get the ball in the net the most number of times by the end of the game. Which obviously, like that is the aim of football, of course it is. But but the same, you know, I I just feel at a bit of a loss really, and um, that I wake up in the morning not looking forward to our games like I spent like I, I would ordinarily be like really excited to watch the game even you know having spent 33 years watching Leeds for a huge period of time that would have been crap um, but I just don't feel excited or motivated or engaged to watch the games I didn't even celebrate when the first goal went in yesterday I just went oh well that's that's that game then and that that was that I, I just felt really sort of flat um, and that's very unusual for me. I'm completely with you there Darren in the sense of like I just 
want to be entertained like that is the purpose of football it isn't just there to be a pure results business and people that say that frustrate me a little bit because you you do watch games to you pay money to be entertained like it's when you go to the 30 you want to be entertained right so i get you fully with that but right now I guess that's the point though, isn't it? You, it is a results business. It's not about entertainment, Adam. Like I said, it's about whether it's effective. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit about it being pretty. I just, I just want to look at it and go, I can see what we're trying to do. I can see the plan that's been played out and we're doing it well or not doing it well. And at the moment, I can't even really identify what game it is we're supposed to be trying to play. That's the problem for me. Like you say, the, the it, it's not necessarily the entertainment. It's the fact that you're saying, well, I can see what the team are trying to do. Mm. I feel as though my money is going towards something, some yep. kind of process. And I, I, that's kind of how I feel at the moment. I'm sort of like, well, yeah, okay, this is all well and good. But a lot of the time it feels like you say, none of this really feels repeatable. A lot of it feels like highly, highly luck-based. Mm. And I spent the last 10 games of last season saying this isn't sustainable. And I'm getting into the same situation again. I feel like maybe this isn't sustainable and we're sort of over for performing on certain things we'll talk about that later on but uh, I want to see I want to see a game where I'm like I can see what the team are trying to do okay maybe it doesn't work maybe we don't have the personnel to pull it off but the, at, the, at the moment we're playing very much like a moments team where we don't really know what we're doing but we're pulling it off through use of vastly superior automatic weapons you know it's that's kind of the way that that's the kind of the way that it's going John I think it might be worth us saying a little bit more about what we mean by luck because obviously the, the Rafinha hits that shot is a great shot people are going to go well that's not not lucky that's just a great shot but if you look at the number of times he's shot from there across the course of the season the number of times it has gone in it's about it's about the number of those moments that come off right so so if Rafinha takes that shot you know what's the xg on that it's probably like point, point one point one or something under, yeah. yeah under that so you know that that yeah, it is a great shot, but at the same time, the number of times that that shot hasn't gone in over the course of the season, that's what we mean when we're talking about luck. It's not about that that wasn't a great strike, because clearly it was. Yeah, and I think you can say all three of the goals were, were lucky in that respect. I mean, but Infogol had both shots from outside the box at 0.03, so that's three in 100 you'd expect to score those. Um, I think maybe Statsbomb will have bumped them up a little bit, I don't know. Uh, but then the Rodrigo goal was a big chunk of our XG, so we've said the XG was 1.1, um, and... Uh, Rodrigo goal was probably 0.6 of that according to Statsbomb from what I can see so a big chunk of your of your goals are created by the opposition uh, and then the other two come from very low chances but um, yeah again like it's good to win I don't want us to be miserable in this no, no, podcast no. but it, I do think it is interesting that this is a game where we've won 3-0 and I think a lot of people have felt quite flat about the result yep. and and I, I, I think that's just a remarkable thing but let's move on and talk about the game itself a little bit more so between the Rafinha goal which was at 21 minutes and the Rodrigo goal which was at 73 minutes Leeds had just one shot which was that Calvin Phillips effort from outside the box and that was all against Watford do we have a problem managing games Darren? I really struggled with this question, John, when I thought like, I spent a bit, quite a bit of time this morning thinking about it because I think, I think that what the question implies is that we tried to manage the game more defensively or become less aggressive or to try attack less after we'd scored the first goal. And I'm just not sure that that's the case. I think the problem was more that Watford upped their level of aggression, moved slightly higher up the pitch, put us under more pressure from that point where we went 1-0 ahead and we struggled to deal with that and therefore couldn't progress the ball into dangerous areas. Um, and, and I think that was the case more. So whether it's about game management or whether it's about the player quality or tactical plan not allowing us to get the ball into the areas we need to do to create chances, I'm not sure which of those it is. I, I, my, I suspect I'm leaning more towards it's more about the fact that we that we weren't able to progress the ball uh, and and that's where that's where the problem fell down because I don't think I I don't think there was a noticeable drop off in terms of like us trying to do that. It was just that we weren't able, to, you know, like because Watford suddenly pushed their players higher when when the the sort of hoying the ball up the pitch that we were doing earlier in the game to more effect that became less effective because Watford had blockers in place and were able to kind of stop us from doing that. So I don't think it's a game management question. Uh, question is I think where I'm where I've landed on it. It's a, it's a quality and tactical issue. Yeah, so the reason why I've asked this question is because the same thing happened in the Southampton game, which is we got the first goal and then we weren't able to hold on to the ball and equally the lead because of that. I thought we did drop off against Southampton, like noticeably become more defensive against them, but I don't think that was the case yesterday. That I suppose I, I see those two games slightly differently in terms of what happened, although the outcome uh, in terms of what happened in, that, in those periods of the game was probably quite similar. 
So in the preview podcast, we talked about how this game was going to be won and lost in transition. And we mm. talked a lot about how Watford were going to be difficult to play against because they were going to sit deeper. Um, and part of the part of the um, approach of, of Marshball is to try and hit teams in transition, get them running backwards, put the ball into dangerous central areas and try and, and, try and force the ball through into uh, chances from there. And it's interesting hearing you talk there, Darren, about about the fact that Watford played a little bit higher because of that obviously invites then the ability to get the ball in behind or into those spaces and and cause those sort of backwards defending moments. Um, I'll come to you on, on this one, Adam. Is that disappointing for you? Because it feels as though that game was all about game state, right? It was about whoever, whoever gets the first goal is probably going to come out and win. Um, but also whoever gets that first goal, or if, if Leeds get that first goal, then the, the, the game is going to turn really in their favour and it felt to me as though the, the game should have turned in their favour in those moments as Darren's saying when when Watford came out more actually we became less effective than we than we did when they were sitting deeper so what's your thoughts on that? No it is a strange one I actually said the same during the game in the discord I was saying that I think the game might open up now and we scored or something to that effect and and we didn't really see that like you said we had one shot in, in what 40 or 50 minutes of play after that so it didn't in the way we expected it to I think that Watford did end up having to come out and, and play a little bit more on the front foot. I said they might have to do this in the preview. I said that they probably wouldn't be able to be as deep as they have been. They can't just play for a point. They've got to go for the win. But that did not play into our hands the way maybe we expected it to. Like We thought, yeah, like transitionally it might have, have, have suited us and, and the chaos might have suited us a lot, but it didn't really play out like that, did it? The other thing I wanted to mention, you, you talked about problems managing games. Um, it feels to me that we've lost some of the the stuff under Bielsa of keeping the ball as well as we used to and keeping it ticking over at the back. I don't know whether yesterday, you know, is going to be emblematic of us going forward, but um, it does feel a little bit like that yesterday. Um, they they were able to sort of cause us a lot of problems in keeping possession. We're going to talk about that later as well. Um, without actually looking like they were pressing us particularly well. We were just hoying the ball out and, and losing it rather than sort of shoehorning it around the back to another fullback if, if that's the case to try and get out or whatever. But we weren't doing that quite as much. And that that sort of also lends itself to how we progress the ball out. Um, and we obviously don't do it in the same way as we did under Bielsa. But we seem to just have lost the ability to just keep the ball at the back as well as we used to. So... Um, it's obviously something that's not as important to Marsh as it was Bielsa. Yeah, that's an interesting one because I think the idea there is that you know you're not wanting to keep the ball because you're wanting to get the ball quickly into dangerous areas, and the problem becomes when we're in those situations where we go up a goal, maybe against the run of play, and then suddenly you're in a situation where you just have to keep attacking, and and if your attacking isn't working, then you're just inviting the ball to come back to your defensive areas again very quickly. Uh, Darren, you must have thoughts on this. Yeah, it was it was clear to see that that we were really struggling to keep hold of the ball. Well, actually, that we weren't really trying to keep hold of the ball like that. I think that that's the key point, isn't it? It's not it's not that we were trying to and struggling because Watford were able to kind of press us or that we that we weren't you know capable of doing it. It's just the fact that we're looking for the first opportunity that we can see to try and progress the ball forward, and and whether that's looking for a pass, which is what I'd prefer for us to do, or whether we're just sort of lumping the ball kind of da- you know into areas which is what I think we were doing, then then when you're lumping into an area, but what you're trying to hit is is somebody of the profile of Dan James. And this is not about whether he's good or not, right? This is about this is about what, what his profile of his of him as a player is. He's not going to be able to hold the ball up. He's really about making runs behind but but I don't think Watford were giving up a tremendous amount of space in behind. So that means that you kind of effectively neutralise whatever qualities he's got. Um and the I think the movement and rotations of the front four aren't as effective as as we're used to seeing. So we don't, we're not seeing players drop from one space into another to pick the ball up in the same way that we used to do. It's much more rigid in terms of the movement, which which just means that that when you've got players like Luke Aylin who gave the ball away like an incredible number of times yesterday, I think that he he looks up and and he's you know he's not he's not seeing the sort of movements and rotations that he's used to seeing so what he does is he's got two choices he can either rotate back to a centre back which he's not really kind of thinking about doing or he can or he can hit the ball forward and hope that we can counter press from that situation and and that's that's why it looks like he was giving the ball away so much because a lot of our play goes down the right hand side he gets the ball he's got to he's got to play it into an area 
and and the counter press not being as effective as it could be, albeit it did kind of round up in a roundabout way bring us two goals yesterday, means that it just looks like we're just wasting the football. Do we think that the in possession stuff has declined since Bielsa? Yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. But I think it, I think it's the, it's the intent has changed rather than we're mm. less good at doing it. I think that's where I'd say. Yeah, and again, it comes from, as you've said, there's no need to make those rotations. Why would you rotate if you're just going to clack the ball long? But um, it does feel to me that like at least in the first few games, we looked okay in possession because we were still just doing the Bielsa stuff. And now it feels as though we're, we're kind of doing the Bielsa stuff when it suits because the, obviously if you're in possession, sometimes it's just easier to get the ball in a wider area because you'll be under less pressure. Mm. Um, but yep. it feels as though there's less movement, less rotation and less interest in necessarily getting into the, keeping the ball in those ways. Yeah, well, I touched on this in the Southampton game. What you used to see with Bielsa is the ball would go wide. Let's say Jack Harrison's on the left-hand touchline or something, right? The ball goes wide to him, and what you would immediately see is the rest of the team converge and rotate and move into space and try and drag defenders around. Now, you do see the team converge into that space because there were times yesterday, one of the things I did notice is that particularly when the ball was on our left-hand side, you would see Luke Aylin come very narrow like like beyond the halfway point and kind of compress the, the whole game into that quarter of the pitch but but Bielsa's system's all about creating space Marsh's system's all about closing spaces up so that that means that that even if you do see like rotation and movement it's going to be harder to find those passes because we've condensed the game to such a small area of the pitch yeah and as I constantly keep saying in a counter-pressing system you need to retain your structure uh, and it needs to be a uniform structure so a lot of the time you'll see a 4-2-3-1 structure being played really narrowly and really compactly out of possession around the ball because you have to have players as close as possible so you need to have a uniform structure so you can't really encourage rotations because as soon as you're doing that players are getting moved out of those structures but I feel as though we're moving moving rapidly um, from one question to another so I'll move back to the running order at this point but um, uh, I'll go to you Adam we talked about Robin Cock um, being started as a pivot player in the intro. Um, before we went into the um, into the game, we did the, the preview space of the, the lineup, and we talked a little bit about him in there. What did you make of uh, Robin Cock playing as a pivot player? Yeah, we've discussed like the differences between uh, Bielsa's single pivot and Marsh's double pivot a few times now on this podcast. Um, and I saw that he got quite a lot of praise on Match of the Day. Uh, they did a little bit of piece on him and Click and how they played next to each other. Um, but for me, I don't think he had his best game from a defensive point of view. He was he was largely fine, but in terms, in terms of like on the ball stuff, he's not quite doing what you expect from the pivot player. Like for sure, played a lot better I thought against Southampton than than Cock did against Watford, for example. Um, so it was a shame that he was missing. Um, and of the two, I thought Click was the better. He was the one actually doing a little bit more of the the progression stuff um, through to the attacking midfielders and and looking to play on the front foot. Uh, Cock often dropped sort of next to the centre-backs, um, usually at the right side of Urento in in possession to sort of help with build-up or whatever, but I don't think it really was that effective. But it's interesting because Phillips did a little bit of this against Southampton when he came on as well. So it, for me, maybe it's maybe that they're sort of more stuck in the Bielsa ways because they're both used to that pivot and they drop deeper. So that's probably going to have to change. They're going to have to play a little bit higher up potentially um, than they have. Like Forshaw and Click seem to to sort of maintain their shape and and stay in position um, a little bit better than Cock. I, I wasn't as impressed with them as, um, as some people were yesterday. Yeah, and Darren, we talked yesterday about, in, in the preview um, space, about whether or not Robin Cock being played signaled that we were going to play more centrally and it obviously didn't pan out that way but um, Jesse Marshall made a big thing in his press conference about Robin Cock picking up the system better than anyone else um, I, don't, I keep hearing him saying this about people I think he said the same about Sam Greenwood as well and I then go into the games and I'm like I don't even I don't understand what that means like it we're not we're not playing any sort of recognizable system so any thoughts on on that sort of aspect of the of the Robin Cock start yeah I mean I think I think one of the things that that was noticeable and Adam's touched on it uh, already like there was obviously a clear decision to move Robin Cock into the right back area when Luke Aylin moved forward to try and kill their transitions and I don't think that was about supporting build-up I think it was about killing their transitional opportunities and and that's fine so if that's if that's Robin Cock picking up the system better than anyone else then great he did that he did that well he moved into that and and, and I'm, I'm not being sarcastic like he, he he clearly did that he followed that 
that instruction. He moved into the moved into the area where his coach wanted him to, and that's fine. It was on the ball really that I thought he that that he struggled. Um, he he didn't progress the ball as well as I've seen him do in previous games where he's played as a single pivot. Um, and I, and and actually, I think I felt the absence of Forshaw more than I felt the presence of Cock. If that makes any sense, um, that that I that. Forshaw's intelligence in terms of the way that he's able to turn in to create space for himself where there isn't a lot of space I thought we really missed that and quite often what what that meant was that we were trying to pass and just hitting the first player so many times which which you'd very very rarely see Adam Forshaw do so um I yeah I I I like you John I really struggle to identify what what it is that that um that Marsh means when he says that he thinks Cox picked up the system better than better than any other player and maybe it's just something that's coming out on the training ground but not particularly on match day and that that's fine but we can all you know I I can make decent breaks when I'm practicing snooker on my own but put me in a match situation and it all goes to pot and it's the same thing I think sometimes with with games uh, where where what's happened on the training ground doesn't transfer because the opposition um you know. In in the in that training session, so um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I I really just. I mean, I thought he, I thought he was fine, but I, but I do think he was a contributing factor to why we couldn't progress the ball as well as we might have been able to on if Forshaw had been present. Surely, going to pot on a snooker table is what you want to go. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. It is indeed. <laughs> and just a quick question to the two of you: If you were to be able to pick any combination of players for a double pivot, who'd you pick, Adam? Right. I love Calvin Phillips for a variety of reasons, um, but I think right now I would pick Click and Forshaw. I think it's been the most effective, and that doesn't mean to say that Phillips can't longer term. But right now, I would pick those two. Darren, yeah, I agree. I agree, and and again, it's it's not because I th- I think we talked about this in the preview podcast. It's not because because it's because Calvin Phillips' skill set suits being what Bielsa would call the third central defender more than it suits some of the things that, that we've been required to that the players have been required to do in this system. It's a it's a it's more about that kind of being able to to play quickly in a tight space and get the ball forward because because we're trying to avoid that press coming onto us, right? Um and I, I think I think Forshaw and Click kind of dovetail really nicely in terms of the way that they play that role. Whereas I think at I think because Phillips is so used to playing as a single pivot, um, and and Cock is more used to playing as a central defender, that what you end up getting is too much, actually too much compaction. When when Watford got into advanced areas yesterday, there were times when we were playing with a backline of six, not a backline of four, with with pivots looking out for the spaces in front of the in front of the D, which I think proved a bit of a problem at times. Yeah, I'm also a click for sure pivot guy. Again, just to reiterate what you're saying about the defensive situations, the, when you play a single pivot, the defensive situation under Bielsa is that pivot is there to sort of last minute firefight. Whereas under Jesse Marsh, a double pivot, you have obviously two players close to each other and also you're playing fairly defensively anyway in, in that iteration and you're trying to counter press so there's lots of players around the ball so the defensive aspect of that pivot is not quite so important what's more important is the on ball stuff as you're saying just to say that I would pick Phillips in front of Cock for that position like by a long Agreed. way that's the only yeah. other thing that I would Agreed. say yeah yeah. The one final question just quickly we had a few questions about the substitutions um, and I wondered what you guys made of, of the substitutions Darren yeah I, I picked up on this in the in the spaces chat beforehand that I, I was worried about the a situation whereby we end up with, with a double pivot of Phillips and Cock and, and that's what we ended up with because I felt that that robbed us of the things that Matthias Click brings so I thought I thought this again this is not necessarily a criticism of Phillips because it's just about the profile of the player um and yeah we we missed click when he went off and he always comes off at 60 65 minutes which is why I was a bit concerned uh, about it I thought Greenwood did fine you know it, as well as you could expect in the sort of situation that he was thrown into and Somerville looked lively albeit with lively in the wide area wider areas although he did play a bit narrow, narrower than he does for the under 23s but yeah i mean I don't think the f- substitutions were an enormous factor in the game either way, to be honest. Adam, anything to add? Not too much to add. Um, I know that Click's been our default sort of 60-65 minute sub at the moment, but I did I did find it odd that he went off because I thought he had impressed out the two pivots a little bit more than Cox, so that was a bit annoying for me, but didn't really matter in the end. And the Greenwood won, like, yeah, he did impress me, me enough, to be honest. Um but I think there were some elements of his game towards the end of it being a bit game-statey at that point. Like, 
the game at 2-0 had already been lost for them and they had clearly had gone. Um, they, they'd given up and so he ended up getting an assist for Harrison and that's great, but um, I don't think he would have done that had it been only 1-0. Um, so, uh, you know, the game just changed at that point. So, yeah, I, I think the way he impressed is partly down to, to the state of the game by the end of the game. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, let's move on to talk about the things that you want to talk about. So this is the bring a topic section. So we'll kick off with you, Darren, because I think your question leads into Adam's question. So what did you want us to talk about? Almost as if I wrote it that way on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) So we've said that this isn't marsh ball, right? It's not marsh ball. It isn't Bielsa ball. It clearly isn't that what is it then so what is it what what is the style of play that we're playing at the moment and more important than that I think than defining what this is I think what I'd like to have a chat about is what is the path to this looking like a recognizable tactical plan like how do we get from where we are now to something that looks like a structured game of football rather than just like a schoolboy game of football with everyone running around and crowding around the ball which I think anyway yeah so what do you think how do we get there how do we get from where we are now to where Jesse Marsh wants us to be Tom Woodhead uh, mentioned in our group chat that he wondered if if we've ditched the man marking and become slightly more organized but the rest of the stuff is kind of like a do what you want type situation for now sort of express yourself Marsh talks a lot about mentality and and players playing with confidence and whatever and and you can think what you want of that but maybe at the moment it's less about you know, functioning quite the way he wants and more about just sort of getting the job done and by whatever means necessary. Um, so maybe that is the case with the first part of your question and, and with regards to what does it look like long-term with the path? What is this going to look like tactically going forward? I've kind of said this a few times recently, but I think a pre-season and, and a transfer window definitely does improve this. I don't know what extent it improves it to. I don't know what it's going to look like exactly by... August but you know I, I do think that that will help things for sure like Marsh getting a few players in that he, he maybe knows or maybe that will fit a little bit better um, and then we'll know more sort of going into the first five to ten games of next season but for now it's kind of just you know what we need to get the points and, and that's the main thing. Yeah it's, it's hard to answer this one and I think the, the big thing is is that that people seem to assume that coaches can just impose their play style on teams um and i think that it that is true but i think it's good coaches who can do that and the issue here is that marsh is coming into one system which is actually very very different to the previous system and at the moment has not showed any ability to to coach his style of play onto this team beyond probably like a zonal system at the back roughly which i don't think is particularly hard to coach so um for me that's the big question the big question is we will find out how good a coach Jesse Marshes if he can actually develop some sort of semblance of that Red Bull style system on this team and it it's worth saying I think that Jesse Marsh has coached for the majority of his coaching career at clubs where that system is a continuous reality so he he goes into New York Red Bulls and 
they have been playing Red Bull football. And he takes over there, and he's able to um, sort of take up that system, and then and then add the the obviously the the motivational levels there. Then he moves to Salzburg, same thing. Um, so it's the same. It's the same system. It's already been played there. It's played after he leaves, uh, and he's able to keep that system going. The, the, then he goes to RB Leipzig. He isn't actually able to impose his style of play on those players. Obviously, it's a short amount of time, but he isn't able to do it, and, and he ends up leaving. And he's now moving into this system. And obviously, the Red Bull the system is is designed around that 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 style of play. He's now come to a club which doesn't have that tradition of Red Bull football, and he has to impose that system onto the players. And I think it's not a given that that will happen. For me, the big question is: Can he actually do this? And I think that's what your question is about, right, Darren? That it, at the moment, it doesn't really look like we're making that trajectory towards some kind of system. At the moment, it just feels as though it's a, a we're sort of in a holding pattern until we get to the summer, and we're going to do that thing again, which we always do, which is well, with a whole preseason, everything's suddenly going to be <laughs> solved. So that's kind of where I'm at. I think for for me, this is crunch time for Marsh because I think he's got to start imposing some kind of stylistic aspects that mean that when we look at that team we th- we can say yeah well we can tell what they're trying to do it's just not coming off and at the moment it's not happening we know we have a good long two-week break I think now before the next game uh, so you'll have time to work with the players and I think if we get to the end of that two weeks and we should see the same sort of stuff being done you know how how long is pre-season going to be they're going to have a, it's a six long weeks, it's six right? weeks so they're going to have a long holiday it's probably shorter because of the world cup or something so mm. he's not going to get a huge amount of m- more time than he's really had in i mean we've just had a two week break he's got another two week break if we're not seeing any changes after that i'm going to start feeling a little bit um, nervous about his ability to do that and i think this leads on to your question uh, as well adam a little bit so it, it does doesn't it? it dovetails really nicely thanks for that darren um, <laughs> i said <laughs> what do we think the ceiling is with this style of football and how long term is it going to be i think in the in the premier league the ceiling of this type of football and what, what we mean by that i guess it's important to define what we mean by this do you mean this kind of halfway house not really one thing or the other neither dog nor cat style of football or do you mean what is the ceiling of actual red bull style jesse marsh ball like that the, i think the, that's full thing full shebang okay so so i guess what i would say that that a ceiling of that would be like probably finishing reasonably comfortably mid-table would be one ceiling with the occasional foray into flirting with the europa league places would be probably round about where i'd imagine that the ceiling of of this style of football would be and that assumes that you get the recruitment right it assumes that you're able to kind of impose a tactical plan it assumes a lot of it assumes a lot of things but i think that's kind of where the natural ceiling of it is if it doesn't work then the long term thing is that there is no long term thing for it like that that's the reality of it right i mean like i suppose you'd look at southampton and say that there are spells in the season when they look like a really good team when they when they when they're around the top 7 top 8 and then there are other spells of the season where it's really not working and southampton fans want um want Hassan Hootle out right that that's that's how it works at Southampton and I would imagine that that yeah because we probably have a slightly higher budget because of bigger fan base yada 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 that you would imagine that you'd be like Southampton plus a bit would be would be where I would imagine the ceiling of this sort of football would sit um and you know you might qualify for the Europa League one season and that'd be good fun right so that that's sort of where I think it is I don't know what you guys think it's an interesting one because if you look across the various leagues there's different levels of success that this football can perform so for example Germany is the interesting one we've just talked about Jesse Marsh at RB Leipzig and it's not really working out and it feels to me a little bit like that's a general trend in in the Bundesliga so you've got uh, Dortmund as well under Marco Rosa who is again a Red Bull manager and it's not really worked out for him at Dortmund uh, so it seems as though in Germany for example maybe this this style of football is 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 waning a little bit but having said that if you look at somewhere like Serie A you've got AC Milan at the top of the of the division at the moment and they're playing a very similar style of football to to Marshall certainly out of possession I think they're like a sort of very intense high pressing counter press win the ball back quickly and then and then attack I do think that they're doing probably more interesting things in possession but they're that they're, they're definitely playing that sort of Red Bull style and there's obviously other intense pressing teams in Serie A obviously uh, Giampiero Gasparini's uh, approach to, to football at Atalanta is is another sort of fairly intense football that's worked quite well but he's gone through that three 
year cycle that Bielsa went through and his team are dropping off and needing a, a rebuild. So for me, the big question is like, how successful will that um, approach be within the Premier League? I think you have to be that conte- contextual. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I just, I was going to come in exactly that point, John. I was I was talking about in the Premier yeah, League with sure, the sure, teams sure. that exist there. Yeah, yeah. I maybe jumped too quickly on the oh well, it's not working in the Bundesliga anymore, therefore it can't really work anywhere because I do think you know in Serie A at the moment it is working, but I do think there's maybe a p- possibility that this is it's almost like a gaming the system style of play I think and I always worry about those sort of gaming the system styles of play is that not that they get found out but when you when when oppositions realize this is how the system is being gamed it happened a little bit with Bielsa when when you're when you're sort of saying well we'll throw ourselves all in on this one tactical style which which can give us an upside against certain sides and and will probably give us more than the sum of our parts I think they've become very easy to sort of analyze and recognize the weaknesses of and then you don't really have that that plan B um, that we, we we talked about incessantly under under Marcelo Bielsa. So in terms of where where that ends up finishing, yeah, like Southampton is a good I think correlate. And they've I mean Southampton have been playing this sort of football for what three seasons now, or is it four? It's been a while. You don't get the sense that I mean I, I get the sense that they're maybe a bit more solid. They've probably improved their player base and they're, they're sort of they're very good at move, bringing players in and then selling players on and, and and sort of upping the value of their squad in that way. Um, but again, they've they've pretty much done everything right. It would seem, and I know a lot of people think that Southampton are pretty unremarkable, but. Southampton are probably a pretty successful example of that. And as you've said, Darren, there's maybe we may be Southampton with a bigger budget, but then the question is, is, is are Southampton maybe smarter in their running processes? And does it sort of balance out if you if you're if you're good at the the the, the processes but don't have much money? If you have more money and you're not quite as good at those processes, maybe it balances out a bit. So I think yeah, probably mid mid table, but you never know. Like things can happen, and you mentioned that there'll be some seasons where we do okay. But I guess the, the big question for getting into Europe is, are there going to be seasons now where the top six mess up? And Because it, it feels like we have a, a fairly solid classic top six at the moment with Arsenal and Spurs becoming better again. So there's just so little space to, to really encroach on their, on those sorts of places as well. So maybe for me, the question is like more, is this a, a style of football that actually allows us to stay in the league rather than how high up the table should we, we go? I guess you would call it a high floor, low ceiling kind of football. And that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's move quickly on to the listener questions. So question one, we'll kick off with you, Adam. Uh, Jack Forster said, is there a statistic to show that we've been lucky in defence since Marsh took over? Many more unforced errors from opponents, more missed shots, more last ditch tackles, etc. Because it seems opponents are very wasteful against us recently. Yeah, one of the ways is the cumulative XG. So uh, I think we're a 6.8 against is our XG, but we've actually conceded eight goals. So by that way, you could say we've been unlucky, but I I'm kind of of the opinion that we have got a bit of luck. Um, I think teams sometimes give away threatening positions and they don't necessarily play the right pass or they're almost in, but they don't quite make the next phase or whatever. But um, So I don't think the uh, cumulative XG is actually like the best barometer of, of how, how this looks. And, uh, and I do agree that with, with Jack's question that maybe we're a bit more wasteful. Uh, uh, sorry, the opponent's a bit more wasteful against us than they should be with the ball. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I talked a little bit about expected threat recently because I think, for example, if you look at the expected threat from the game yesterday, Watford were much more threatening. They didn't generate any XG from it, and um, obviously that's that's not necessarily a problem. Like you don't need to be, you know, threatening as long as you're generating that XG. But I do think in the long run, the more threatening you can be, the more likely you're going to be to generate chances. And so, yeah, I, I think that's maybe something that we should we should think about at the back of our minds is that I think teams against us are actually looking a little bit threatening. Um, and, and at the moment, it's not coming off. But when you come up against a big side, suddenly all of those missed tackles and, and you know, unforced errors, and, and they all get ironed out. And suddenly you, you then you, you can concede a lot of high quality chances. Yeah, Marsh has had a reasonably flat track would be the one note of caution that I would sound here in terms of the the opponents that he's faced and that, that in the next few weeks we're going to find out a little bit more, I think, about, about how the system works. Yeah. Darren, we had a question from Adam who said, Ailing and Dallas both look worse in the system. Why and do both need replacing for the start of next season? I don't think Ailing and Dallas necessarily looked a lot worse than anyone else yesterday. That's the one thing that I would say about that. And then the other thing would be that Bielsa's system created space for both of those players that Marsh's system doesn't. And I, and I think I, I really put the, the differences down 
as simple as that. And I think Dallas has had decent games. Aylin's had decent games. Yeah, but but the but when they look up, the passing options that they're used to seeing aren't there, and therefore they're giving both Leach in the ball a lot more than you would, are used to seeing. Yeah, um, I thought Ailing was actually quite poor. Yes, I think he had about fifty percent pass accuracy or something around that mark. So it's definitely a problem. Um, we've discussed the right backs uh, position with Orta's list, and I think that's pretty obvious that we need an upgrade there. Someone with a little bit more recovery pace. Because our back line's quite slow. Um, the fullback role in this system, though, is is not that important in in the sense of they only need to really get the ball in towards the central area um, and maybe occasionally give us an option to be either wide or they need to just like Ailing did yesterday, compact things for a counter press. So it's not it's not essential to the way we're going to play. Um, I would also sign a left back potentially, but. I think Firpo could come back into this and look decent if if he can get a run of games. I've said that from the start, really, with him. He's just been a bit unlucky with injuries and, and then form's been up and down. He's had a, a few really, really bad games, but he's had some some decent ones too. So let's hope that maybe he can come back and, and get a run and start to look good again. Ailing probably had his best game at centre-back for Jesse Marsh. Is that an option? Yeah, I would rather see that going forward. Final question from Crombopolis, Matthew, who said... How do you see this, let's be honest, pretty ugly and attritional football faring against the stronger teams in the league? Giving up the ball so much to quality teams surely won't end well defensively and in an offensive sense, those teams should be more resistant to our press. So uh, we touched on that a little bit at the end of the last section, but yeah, uh, Darren. Yeah, I, I think this is this is where we're going we're gonna to see really what, what you know, um, how this looks. I, I, like I, I'm not looking forward to the Man City game at all. I'm not particularly looking forward to the Chelsea or Arsenal games either because I think they're going to they're going to both be a struggle. We might be able to bypass Arsenal's press uh, more than we were able to do against them under Bielsa, but then once the ball goes into those areas, w- what do we do then? And 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 that's the that's the question really uh, that that remains to be answered. So, I'm I'm a bit concerned really about like if momentum has been built up and some people would argue that it has and and I'm not quite so sure about that but if it has been built up how's it going to look when we come up against these teams and if those teams give us the sort of hiding that I think they might um so that's uh, yeah something I'm not especially uh, encouraged about right now I think when you do come against elite sides with elite players they're going to make the right decision more often than they're not so that's going to be the issue for me like you've talked about expected threat and teams against us getting into good positions but not necessarily making the most of it um, when you have Kevin De Bruyne bearing down on us and if he's got an option out on the wing which we're going to leave space there because that's what happens in Marsh systems there is going to be space in behind us on the wing he's going to play that pass nine times out of ten correctly there was a time yesterday in particular where Watford had the chance to counter us and they had the ball sort of going towards our box and they had two options one on the edge of the box near the centre-backs and one on the edge of the box further wide and he chose the option near the centre-backs, whereas and we sort of mopped it up, whereas if he'd chosen the option wide, they might have had a chance to sort of run in on goal and have a shot. And you, you would think that not even players of just De Bruyne's talent, but just players that are much better, much more elite, they'll choose that option correctly more times than they won't. And that's where we're going to uh, end up conceding chances rather than just threatening positions. Um, I think against the bottom seven or eight teams in the league, we might be quite good and, and that's fine. And, and that means that next season we finish sort of 12, 13. That's, that's great. But, um, you know, then the, the bad, the, the good teams, we're going to really struggle, I think. And one question I did have very, very quickly is that how much different would these, this run of games have looked under Bielsa? Cause these teams weren't great. And I honestly don't think it would have been that different. I think we would have got a similar amount of points. It might've come in a different sort of, way that we might have lost to Wolves and won another game or somewhere or something like that but I think that it would have been about the same I did notice that if you look at the points for the reverse fixtures under Bielsa Mm. I think Marsh has maybe picked up one extra point so yeah it's it's highly contingent on a lot of things but yeah I think a lot of this comes down to the fact that Marsh was brought in for a nice run and um, Bielsa went out on the end of a horrible run obviously there's some not nice performances in there but yeah it just all ties back into why I don't think we should have got rid of him when we did like if we were going to lose Vielsa it should have been at the end of the season it would have been best to keep him for this run of games and then we could have had our little our little goodbye but I don't want to upset anyone listening so I'll, I'll move on all I would say about that is I don't know whether the results would have been different but I think I would have had more fun watching the games <laughs> right Statric Bamford 
It's been a while since we've had a Statric Bamford. Thomas Wilson of Focus on Leeds did put a pass map in our group chat yesterday. So um, I had a look at that. He was showing how actually most of the play was being built up in wide areas. But I noticed that the pass completion rate was very low. Uh, so I had a look this morning and it was actually the worst pass completion rate overall um, for any game this season and by quite some stretch. So uh, pass completion rate of 65% uh, and the, the the next highest one is 70%. So 5% uh, off that really. Um and yeah, by by a big big old jump, the next one's like one percent higher than uh, that. So, um, if you're interested in the seventy percent one, it was a nil nil the nil nil draw with Brighton, which I've completely forgotten uh, all all facts about. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit about pass completion. I'll start off with a caveat, which is like I don't know how much you can read into pass completion as a useful metric for for anything really. Um, I think a lot of the time under Bielsa we would have people asking us questions about players past completions and you'd never really be able to see anything from the individual players plus past completions so people would be like oh Ailing felt like he missed all his passes and you'd go and have a look and his past completion rate was like the same as everyone else's and it would be roughly around 80% and obviously a lot of the time the past completion rate is going to be higher I think uh, under Bielsa because you're doing so much of that building up at the back um, so that is the caveat but I do think it's interesting that, that I mean 65% is is low and uh, I think that sort of matches up quite nicely with the eye test because it felt as though a lot of the time yesterday we're winning the ball back and then just giving it straight back to the opposition so I wondered if either of the two of you had any thoughts on on this aspect of uh, of the of the game and um, maybe we could talk a little bit more about what the general plan was around that I don't know which one of you wants to kick off I've, I've kind of touched on this. I don't think that it's as important to Marsh to sort of keep the ball well as it is under Elsa. I think he's going to revel in the chaos somewhat and that's kind of evident at teams like Salzburg and Leipzig at times where if you can get the ball into areas where you can counter-press, even if you're losing it, it's fine because you can then create chances through that. So I don't think he cares particularly about pass completion if you were to ask him about this sort of thing. For us as fans, it's frustrating, but as you know, for in terms of what we want to do and if we want to win the game, Marsh probably pretty, you know, okay with however however that looks, whether it's at seventy five, eighty percent, or if it's at sixty five, like it was yesterday. No one metric in isolation means anything, right? It's all about the the wider context of the whole exactly. piece. Like like you say, this really it does it does fit with the eye test. Um, and I'd and you know I'd normally be saying something like but but you know that in in attacking areas we're able to find the key passes that blah 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 and that's just not the case either yesterday I just I just yeah I think it just speaks to the team um, not being as drilled in terms of formation uh, in terms of possessional patterns um, trying to abandon those to a degree getting into the areas where they used to being but not having the options that they used to seeing when they get there um, and I think. You know that 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 maybe we're going to have to get used to seeing possession um, pass completion rates that are, that are lower than we've traditionally seen uh, under Bielsa because because as Adams as we said right through this podcast I don't think Marsh is especially bothered about whether we keep the ball well or not he's bothered about whether we get the ball into dangerous areas and then counter press from there um, and and I think that we might see a downward trend on this as long as we see an upward trend in the pressing metrics and the counter pressing metrics and I think it's fine um, but at the moment I'm not particularly sure that we're seeing that. Yeah a couple of things to say I'm just looking at the Leipzig numbers from the beginning of the season and they're low 80s high 70s um, pretty much across the board during his time there is one game against uh, Bruges where they win it 5-0 and they have a pass completion rate of 66% um, which maybe suggests by the end they were sort of doing the stuff that he wanted to do I don't know but um, that, that's one thing the other thing is there's a difference between passing to counter press and passing to for for no reason whatsoever, and I think that was the big issue yesterday. Right, the the big issue yesterday was that we weren't creating situations where we could then generate better scenarios to attack from, and that's the issue with this sort of play. Is that if you're not doing that, all you're doing is giving the ball back to the opponent, and as we've we've said already, that's a a volume thing. And it comes down to the expected threat stuff that we've talked about, um, but it also comes down to what we've talked about about the, um, the the propensity for bigger teams to really cause you problems from that. And that it, it's just a simple volume thing. If you're push, playing the ball forward, not counter-pressing, you're giving the opposition the ball and they're just able to like counter-attack. Come back and, at you. Yeah. And you have 
20 of those a half rather than 10 of those a half if you're able to get the ball back and 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 cause problems further up and it's very much what we saw in the Leicester game I thought actually in the in the first game under Marsh was that we tried to play that sort of give the ball back and then and then counter press it or press high and they were just pre- playing through that press so easily that it just the, the, the in the second half we came out and it just seemed like we decided to try and just play Bielsa ball a little bit more just because it allowed us to keep the ball a little bit longer and the longer that you have the ball the less time the opposition is going to have to make those sort of volumetric um, counter-attacking situations as well so yeah it's a it's a it's a very much a knife edge and it's one of those things that as you've mentioned Darren is it is a balance because you know there comes a point where you hope that your counter-pressing becomes good enough that you start seeing the benefit of losing the ball more often but if it's not happening you're just killing yourselves through giving the ball back to the opposition over and over again. I think that brings us to the end of this podcast. Obviously, there's a big old chunk of time before our next game. I think we're playing Crystal Palace on the 25th. Monday the 25th. Yeah, so that's 15 days away. So yes. (laughs) Yeah, you get a break next weekend. (laughs) We'll do something. We'll probably do a live show for our patrons. So do check out our Patreon. We'll also do something at some point during that that space for 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 the free to listen audience, and then we'll be back with a preview podcast with I think Ruben Pinder from from Joe Football usually comes on to talk Crystal Palace, so that will be out closer to that game. But if you do want to check out our Patreon, as I say, the address you need to be going to is www.patreon.com forward slash allstats, aren't we? And with that, it brings us to the end of the podcast and all there is for me to do is to say thank you to darren thank you john thank you adam for making this an enjoyable the most enjoyable football related (laughs) hour of my week you're most welcome and thank you to adam thank you very much john and thank you to all you guys for listening A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.